Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a really fascinating text in the book of John. This sermon's kind of a one-off. We're finishing up Revelation, right? It's done. So, and after this, we're going to Samuel. Samuel. So, we're going to Samuel next. Um, and Nate asked me to preach, and I've been reflecting on John 6 for a little while. Um, and I, it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful passage, but it's also incredibly disturbing when we slow down and we take it seriously. But before we read the passage, since this is a one-off sermon and we're diving into a book that we haven't been in, I'm just going to quickly introduce you to the context of the passage. I'm going to situate it. So just preceding our text, uh, John 6, 35 through 59, um, in John 6, 1 through 34, what happens is Jesus gathers this massive crowd of people 5,000 people on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a huge crowd, especially in the ancient Near East. And he takes this boy's lunch. There's no food. And he's like, oh, we need to feed all these people. He takes this boy's lunch of, of five barley loaves and two fish. And he breaks them and, and ends up feeding all of the people present. And the people who are there are so shocked and amazed and pleased by the wonder of what just happened, that they get excited and they're going to go and try to make him a king. And Jesus notices that they're going to try to go and make him a king. And so what he does is he flees. <laughs> it's like, and the irony of this is if you know like Jesus Christ, Christos in the Greek means anointed one, he is king. He is king, but that's not how he becomes king. So he flees and he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the next day, whoever's left of that crowd, probably a sizable chunk of people, are thinking like, oh, wow, I want to go and find that Jesus guy again. He gave us food yesterday. That was wonderful. What else is he going to do? And so they go to Capernaum, and his di disciples also go to Capernaum, and that's where this passage picks up. And the strange thing is that in this passage, it goes from this incredible group 5,000 people all eager to see what Jesus has to do and eager to hear what Jesus has to say to only 12 disciples because he drives everyone away because of his teachings. They're disturbing and they're hard to swallow, but they are true and they're nourishing to our spirits. So now we can turn to the word of God. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, 
the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who is truly from God, and he's speaking of himself there. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes his eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a good question. So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, and here it's kind of like the picture is gorgeous. Trogo is the Greek term, and it's often used in the early Greco-Roman period to describe the sound of animals gorging themselves on a carcass. (laughs) So it's it's a very powerful word. Whoever feeds gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, indwelling. As the living Father sent me and I will live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The flowers wither and the grass fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would encourage us today with the message that your son spoke to his people 2,000 years ago. Would you enlighten our minds with the knowledge of Christ through the Holy Spirit? Would you give us a willingness to be humbled? Would you help us to know our hunger? Would you help us to rest on you as the one who satisfies that hunger? And would you give us courage to be unsettled by your teachings so that we may know you more and more, we pray. Enlighten our minds. Help us to know you. We need you now and always, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So this passage today, I think, really introduces a problem. Jesus introduces a problem It presents a solution, and then it shows how that solution is applied to God's people. 
There's a problem, a solution, and a way that it's applied to God's people. So, first, the problem, and these are going to be the points of the sermon. Humans have an unresolved hunger. We have an unresolved hunger. Second, the solution, the bread of life satisfies. The bread of life satisfies. And third, the bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. So we're going to start with the first point. Humans, we as humans have an unresolved hunger. Uh, Let's start by considering the main metaphor of this passage of hungering and thirsting. This metaphor leverages and presumes absence. To hunger and thirst is to be without something, to desire satisfaction and not have it, to ache for something that's actually missing. Now, obviously, the metaphor he's speaking of here is an actual hunger. It's a metaphor. Uh, But rather, it's this sense of lack and longing that we experience. Every one of us have been born with a desire for something that can't be fulfilled in our everyday leisures and labors, and pursuits of power in relationships, we have this absence. We have a desire for more. We can't live on bread alone. Throughout the history of humanity, poets and songwriters, authors and philosophers have written about this unresolved hunger that we all experienced. It's universal. Corporations, relationships, worldviews, religions, philosophies, and cultures have all been formed in response to this seemingly universal hunger because we have a desire for more than the world has to offer. Blaise Pascal actually captures the thought pretty well when he says this. He's a Christian philosopher, fascinating author. He says, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the hearts of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. We are born with this desire to know God and be known by God. We are born with the desire for a kingdom that we don't know how to seek. We are born hungry. The condition of our birth is marked by hunger. And the ache of hunger that we feel, I think, is actually a good thing. It feels like suffering, but Jesus comes to tell us that it can be fulfilled. And so, though there's a near universal agreement concerning this problem, the problem of human hunger, this existential hunger, the solutions that have been offered throughout the history of religion and philosophy have been pretty diverse. Um, And this is kind of reductionistic, but you'll get the picture. Buddhism says that you overcome this existential hunger by becoming blind to it. But you can't actually do that with real hunger, or (laughs) it will come to you, and you will soon come to find that there is something beyond this life, uh, beyond just um, becoming blind to your hunger. Albert Camus, an existential philosopher, says you overcome hunger by making peace with its absurdity and laying aside those deeper desires for truth. In other words, there is no truth, so you have to give up on it. 
Muslims attempt to overcome the hunger by their intensive labors of obedience, but they, by their own confession, state time and time again that they fall so short of what's required from them in the Quran. And they live in fear of their God. What Jesus does here is I think he affirms that the hunger is built in and that it's good and that our ache for something more can be satisfied. And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, and you'll hear me, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I think I use him four or five times here, so uh, be prepared for that. He says this on the matter, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we're actually made for another world. The most probable explanation is that we're made for another world. We have a hunger, and Christ satisfies that hunger. The bread of life satisfies. We're on our second point. Let's look at verses 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except for he who is truly from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes his eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Jesus proclaims that he is the bread of life who satisfies the hunger of humanity and slakes its thirst. And I want to point out two ways in which Jesus does this, both here in this text and throughout the Bible. There's a, there's a thick sense in which Jesus satisfies the hunger of humanity. And there is a thin sense in, what, in a clear sense, wherein Jesus satisfies the hunger of humanity. There's a thick sense and a clear sense. And most of you are like, what, what does this even mean, <laughs> thick and clear? And there's another thing from C.S. Lewis. Uh, we were talking about it recently, and Nate brought it up. Um, and here's what C.S. Lewis means by these two terms, thick and clear. And the origin story of these terms is pretty funny, too, so you might enjoy this. He says this, We might divide religions as we do soups (laughs) into thick and into clear. You have a clear soup and you have a thick soup. You know, one might be for summer or autumn or something like that, and the other is more for winter. Anyways, you have thick soup and you have a uh, a clear soup. By thick soup, I mean those which have, by thick, I mean those which have orgies and ecstasies and mysteries and local attachments. By clear, I mean those which are philosophical and ethical and universalizing. Now, if there's a true religion, it must be both thick and clear. For the true God must have made both the child 
and the man. It must have made both the savage and the philosopher, both the head and the belly. Christianity takes a savage convert and tells him or her to obey an enlightened universalistic ethic. It also takes a 20th century academic prig like me and tells me to go fasting to a mystery and to drink the blood of the Lord. The savage convert has to be clear. I, and I think we would all be lumped into this, we have to be thick. Christianity is both thick and clear. It satisfies the questions of the philosopher. It satisfies the needs and desires of corporeal, physical beings. The bread of life, we're going to start first with the clear sense. It's intellectually stimulating, and it answers questions of humanity in a cohesive system of thought. It satisfies some of the major questions of the human mind. Things like, how do we reach beyond ourselves into the realm of absolutes? If there is a God, how can he be known? How do I change? How do we as people change? Jesus confirms these questions, and he confirms that there is something beyond our plane of existence. His claim that the Jews take issue with is that he comes from this other plane, this other thing beyond the veil, this heaven, whatever that is. There is an other. Jesus' solution to the problems is that when it comes to knowing the God behind the veil, God had to become knowable. He had to come down to us. He had to put on flesh. He had to become something consumable. God had to become bread for us to know him. And that's what Jesus is saying that he is. And there are a lot more things that we could say about the cohesive system of Christian thought, um, but it suffices to say that just in this text alone, Jesus presents Christianity as this beautiful vision of an unknowable God who condescends to make himself known to his people, to save them for himself so that he can bring them back up into life everlasting. But the bread of life is not just a cohesive philosophy. It's not just a system of thought. It's not just a compelling rhetoric. It's corporeal. It is physical. It's tangible. And it's tactile. The bread of life satisfies in a thick sense. We, as physical embodied creatures, need more than a philosophy. Regardless of what our cultural context says, we have embodied guilt. We, in our bodies, wrong ourselves. We wrong one another. We wrong God. And we're left with this sense of guilt. Guilt, historically, is normally, when we talk about it in this context, we talk about it as this thing that I feel. I feel really guilty about this thing that I did. And to some extent, it is a feeling. But primarily, guilt is and always has been a legal deficit. You are guilty if you run a stoplight and you have to pay the tra traffic fine in order to make yourself right before the eyes of the government. <laughs> so likewise, with our guilt, we need something to 
change our position in ourselves, in our society, and with God. And in the ancient Near East, the way that God set up a system for dealing with actual guilt, this legal deficit that we have, was sacrifice. Interestingly enough, our passage today actually hints at Jesus' sacrifice. John chapter 6 starts uh, by reminding people, not in our passage, but chapter 6, 4, I think, verse 4, starts by reminding people that the Passover is coming. And the entire section that we're reading is colored by this truth. For those of you who don't remember what the Passover is, it was a feast where a lamb would be taken for each household and it would be killed at twilight. And then it would be roasted and consumed and eaten in haste in remembrance of the Lord's grace in passing over his people at the killing of the firstborns in Egypt, where he was setting his people free from the bondage of slavery. And blood, the blood of the lamb, becomes a sign to the people that reminds them of God's grace. The consuming of this lamb is an image, of a reminder of God's grace for them. And do you know what John the Baptist calls Jesus in the book of John? When he sees him, he says, The Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. The imagery of the Passover is being utilized and replaced in this text. The Lamb of God is coming as a sacrifice to buy his people back to pay the deficit owed, and to redeem them and claim them. The cost, though, is really disturbing when you think about it. The cost is very disturbing. The cost is the body of a God. The cost is the flesh of a God. Jesus says that the bread he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. Christianity is not just a clear religion. It cannot just be presented in some ethereal, ethical, abstracted, philosophical sense. Christianity is not a Western construct. It is thick. It is thick with blood and sacrifice and ritual. It is built on death and life, on spirit and flesh, on the stomach and the mind. This leads us to the third point, though really we're, we're kind of already there. The bread of life unsettles. In order to take the teachings of Jesus seriously without passing over some of the texts or moving too quickly, we're going to find that a lot of his teachings, like this one today, are actually a bit disturbing. They're unsettling. Jesus managed to, in this short Jesus... Jesus, in this short dialogue, managed to go from 5,000 people to 12. (laughs) I I wouldn't have preached it that way, Jesus. (laughs) But this is how he preaches it, because it's true and it's beautiful. So we're going to turn briefly to the text again. We're going to look at John 6, 52 through 58. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so too whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The metaphor is really disturbing. But in order to receive the depth of what's occurring, it helps to sit in the discomfort of the passage. The maker of the human mouth and esophagus and stomach is allowed to play with its imagery. In receiving the bread of life into our bodies, we have union with him, just as he is unified to the Father. True life is available to us only in the breaking of the body of a God and in the shedding of his blood. In Jesus' death and resurrection, in his life and work, he becomes the bread of life. And this is, some of you might have seen me come up with a children's book, maybe. This is a, a book, my daughter Hazel, you might, in the back you might not be able to see it. Uh, my daughter Hazel, she's four years old, she loves little animals, she thinks they're so cute. She's probably going to be a veterinarian at some point. Um, and she brought me this book, and we were excited, like, oh, it's bedtime, let's read some books, and this Whale Fall Cafe, and, and I was like, oh, this looks so interesting, like a cute little shark, and he's got, he's got like a little red hat, and there's some lobsters, they're all sitting at a table, and it's this kind of like, oh, this is going to be really cute, and so we open it up, and oh, whales, it's like a humpback whale, and a sperm whale, and there's a, there's a mink whale, I don't really know what that is. There's a bowhead whale and a blue whale. There's all these cute little whales. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great book. Hazel, I'm so glad you picked this. And then we get to the cover page of Whale Fall Cafe. And those of you who can't see it, there's this whale sitting at the bottom of the ocean. And its body is kind of looks like it's missing some chunks. It's a little disturbing. And I'm like, oh, Hazel, are you sure, sweetie, we don't have to read this book if you don't want to. She's like, no, it's okay. We'll read it. It'll be great. And so I'm like, okay, buckle yourself in. We're going to see what this is like. And so it starts talking about what a whale fall and a, what a whale fall is. And a whale fall is apparently when you take, when a whale dies, its body starts to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And a whale fall is the process by which other animals come and they feast on the whale's body. And again, I asked my daughter, I'm like, Hazel, we really don't, we really don't have to read this. This cute little whale's like getting consumed by, uh, the next page we have uh, barracudas and sharks just kind of like munching on this whale. Like, oh, this is pretty strange, Hazel. I don't know about this. And it gets to the bottom of the ocean. And all these benthic dwellers, these uh, bottom dwellers are living on the bottom of the ocean, and they come and they feast on this whale. Now, a small whale, like an orca whale, weighs around 3,000 pounds. But a blue whale, at full maturity, weighs around 380,000 pounds. 
So you're talking about an animal that big floating down to the bottom of the ocean. How many creatures is it feeding? For the creatures at the bottom of the ocean, where there's no light really, and they're just getting little bits that fall down from, kind of like manna actually, little bits of food that fall down from above them, a whale represents around 4,000 years of food. It's crazy. Anyways, it goes on. There's a bunch of worms eating. I don't want to make you guys look at this whole thing. But there's a bunch of worms that come and feast on the whale. And it keeps going. Um, and after years of this whale decaying and, and being eaten by all these creatures, all that's left are the bones. So maybe two or three years before that happens, you're like, oh, surely it's done. That, that whale fed a lot. But it doesn't stop there. The bones of the whales actually attract these microbes that feast on the calcium and the nutrients in the bones. And these other worms come and they latch themselves onto the bones. And what ends up happening is an entire ecosystem is developed around the body of this whale. And it doesn't just last for two or three or four years. It lasts for centuries Sometimes up to a thousand years, this section of the ocean is completely changed by the body of this whale. And if a whale weighing in, a really big one, weighing in at 380,000 pounds, can make an ecosystem that lasts for centuries, what can the body of a god do? The whale dies and falls down, not of its own will, just it's dead. Jesus came and he gave his life from the will of the Father to feed and nourish his people. A whale's body decays. Jesus came back to life again and rules and reigns. What can the body of a God do? Jesus is calling us into his ecosystem into this kingdom that he is making for us. And it's beautiful. But in order to enter this kingdom, we have to allow ourselves to be unsettled by it. Because we have a spiritual eating disorder. And in order to realize our spiritual eating disorder, we have to allow ourselves to be unsettled by the bread of life. We in our lives have this tendency to look to our marriages, to our parenting styles, to our positions on education, to the toys that we like to play with, to all sorts of different things to fill this void that we have as human creatures. These things are not the bread of life. We have an eating disorder. And in an eating disorder, a person begins to see true, good food as disturbing and wrong. We actually have to learn to feast on the bread of life and allow ourselves to be unsettled by the kingdom that he is building in order to receive the gift of life and live in light of it. Jesus can restore us from our eating disorder. Many of you have at some point in this sermon remembered the Lord's Supper. 
such a beautiful image of what it is to receive the gift of his body and to enter into the kingdom that he is making. So if you are here today and you are suffering, if you feel the aches and pains of the brokenness of the world, of the brokenness of yourself, if you feel the effects of sin in your own life and in the lives of those around you, this is a reminder of what God has done for us in satisfying our hunger. But we don't do it alone. In one sense, we all come to Jesus alone. In another sense, we do it together. And so when it comes time for the, to come and take the bread and the wine, we'll do it as a community, as an ecosystem of God's people living in a kingdom that he is creating for us in hope and in life as he nourishes us and cares for us in his very body. We are born with a hunger. Jesus, in a thick and in a clear sense, satisfies that hunger. And he does it by unsettling us. He applies his love to us and he unsettles us because he cares too much to leave us where we are. Let us be unsettled and shaken by the beautiful teachings and the works of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us here. We thank you that you have taught us in such a way as to cause us pause, to force us to think more deeply about this world and your teachings. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you saw it fit not to leave us as we were, but to come down, to offer us respite and healing and care and life in the bread of life that you are and that you have made for us. Would you encourage us as your people today? Would you remind us, those of us who struggle with addictions, those of us who struggle with unwanted behaviors, those of us who see our sin and struggle to see a way past it, would you encourage your people? Those of us who are wronged, would you remember, would you help us to remember that we have a respite in you and that you will satisfy us in this life and in the life to come? We need you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.